great to hang out. Our team, we have 66 people in Israel. And so our man, Garrett, was going to send the announcements. And uh, he's uh, now doing social media for 10 days for Pastor Rob and Sean Foyt. So he's a little overwhelmed. So tag, I'm it with the longest text you've ever seen <laughs> to deal with announcements <laughs> for the weekend. Hey, we had a great announcement that last week, you guys, is that 91 people got baptized through all the services. It was such a blessing. <clears throat> really cool watching uh, uh, people just follow the Lord in that way. It's just a really beautiful thing. Hey, if you need a Bible tonight, raise your hand and our service team will get them to you as I make some announcements here. But uh, as they're bringing those up, uh, after they get those handed out, we'll pray for the offering. But the number one announcement is uh, taking place. We're going to have a museum exhibit here on April 28th, which is a Friday at 5 p.m. And you're going to be able to touch 50 amazing artifacts that outside of the Smithsonian Institute, David Barton's organization, uh, in combination, their, their partnership, Glenn Beck, they have the largest uh, collection of museum items uh, outside of the Smithsonian. And so those are all going to be here. You can go to our website and check it out, but it's called uh, American Journey Experience. And there's 160,000 artifacts, but they're going to bring the 50 uh, most kind of prominent one. Here's some of the ones that you'll be able to see. You can handle um, the uh, uh, Revolutionary War musket, General Patton's sword, Teddy Roosevelt's compass, Washington's compass, Alexander Hamilton's hair. I don't know what you do with that. <laughs> right? Ben Franklin's printing block. Uh, and it's just going to be a great time. So once again, go to godspeak.com uh, and you can sign up for that museum uh, exhibit April 28th, Friday at 5 p.m. Also, coming up May 6th, there's going to be a men's conference with Pastor Don McClure. It's going to be the normal men's breakfast for, for Saturday of the month at uh, 8 o'clock. And then it's going to be a mini men's conference as Pastor Don exhorts us to be men of faith and how to walk by faith during these um, incredibly challenging times, how to be a man of God, a husband, and a leader. And then a little later that day, uh, Pastor Don and uh, his wife Jean are going to do a couple's message for young and old couples together. Just, you know, doesn't matter where you're at in the journey. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus and you've been married. My wife and I have a saying, we're not out of the woods yet, babe. <laughs> right? Right? You never know if next week's going to just be a little rough, rough going in the whole uh, marriage adventure. And you'd think you'd have it all hammered out after 37 years as I've been married. Uh, four on top of that with uh, dating. So we've been together over 40 years. And every now and then you can still just, it can get a little bumpy. It's always, I don't know. I don't know why at the end of it, I always end up repenting. It's always me. That's... <laughs> the way it is when you're married to an angel. Well, also, the, uh, she's watching this, by the way. Hey, babe. Good. Uh, women's breakfast coming up May 13th, 9 a.m., and that's $5 per lady. And you're going to have a great time of fellowship and encouraging message. Then the Sunshiners is taking place Thursday, April uh, 20th. And that's going to be $5. And they have some special guests, Olu and Dina, who have been involved with... Uh, 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 Child Evangelism Fellowship for a long time. So lots of fun announcements that Gary usually does with a lot of pizzazz. So 
We always, you know, when people are gone, you miss them. Hey, I was uh, waiting for them to get the Bibles handed out, and we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 4. So open in your Bibles to Genesis 4 as we see the first dysfunctional family. And there's been nothing but that since. In this passage, um, we really see the heartbreak of the consequences of sin in a family that are so devastating. Let's pray that the Lord ministers to our heart. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would do a work in our own hearts. Lord, bring healing, bring your wholeness, bring your encouragement, bring your forgiveness, bring your redemption, Lord, to restore that which the enemy has tried to destroy, the bonds of loving fellowship in the midst of our families. Lord, we pray for our team over in Israel that you'll just keep them safe and bring them home safely. Lord, we pray that all the people that are giving to your work here, we pray for your blessing on the offering that we would just reach more people for your kingdom and your glory, Lord. Thank you for this time this evening. We also pray, Lord, tomorrow for Beckett Cook and a special uh, series of um, the three services tomorrow and dealing with a tough subject. We just pray for grace uh, regarding that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, tomorrow, you guys. Tomorrow, um, all three services, we have a special guest, Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook has, a, uh, has been a, a set designer in Hollywood for many years. He lived in the homosexual lifestyle uh, for into his 50s. And uh, in a coffee shop one day, it was a Saturday, these people were having a Bible study next to him, and they invited him to his church in Hollywood, their, their church in Hollywood, uh, on the next day, on Sunday. And so he went to kind of check out this church thing, you know, and he got radically saved. God just met him, and amen. Well, we're going to share tomorrow as we look at our message, human, human sexuality, simplicity, and complexity. And uh, I'll be sharing the biblical framework for sexuality. And then Beckett's going to share his testimony, what has happened in his life. He's now written a book. He's finished seminary. I mean, the Lord's really using his life. I saw him on a uh, very well-known uh, Christian um, interview program when I first saw him about six months ago. And I'm like, we got to have Beckett. He's just, he lives over in Hollywood, right? He's in our backyard. We, we have to have him come. And then we're going to, he's going to share his testimony. And then we're going to do a Q&A. How many of you have uh, somebody that's in the gay lifestyle in your extended family? Raise your hand. Check it out. So uh, because of the seven marriages within my family of my mom and dad, uh, I have had three gay uh, siblings, one full brother that was in the homosexual lifestyle, and then a stepbrother that was gay and a stepsister that was lesbian. And so um, it was very exciting to have conversations surrounding such things, especially with my brother. So we'll be doing that tomorrow, and uh, just to let you know, great resource to uh, have as a message, kind of like a Chloe Cole when we had her come and we talked about detransitioning and those things. Sometimes you just need somebody that's just coming from that culture to speak to the culture and uh, uh, coming alongside the messenger of God's word to say, hey, this is how it works in, the, in God's kingdom. Well, having said all of that, 
Hopefully you made your way to Genesis chapter 4. We'll be looking at this chapter. And my goal is to, as we're going through Genesis, to have a little faster pace. We're moving through and trying to consume for good spiritual nourishment a chapter each time we're together on a Saturday night. Three weeks ago, a man was accused of killing his 18-year-old brother during an argument, leaving his parents grieving. This was in Detroit. This article is from March 23rd, just last month. And an argument between two brothers in Detroit turns deadly when one allegedly shoots the other. There had been an argument and a struggle over a gun. Latricia Williams says she got a phone call very early last Friday. On the other line was her oldest son, who's 22 years of age. He told her he killed his younger brother, her son, the baby, 18 years of age. We don't know what happened that day. We just asked that God have mercy, said Latricia. Jermaine Williams had a bright future. He had plans to write a book on dealing with mental health. He wanted to go to college, and he was a standout football player. We were great parents. This is a a statement of his father. We were great parents. We did everything we could to raise him up in the fear of the Lord. They raised him in the fear of the Lord. This is hurting us because we didn't just lose one son. We lost two, said Latricia, his mother. Sin manifests itself in everybody's life and in every family member within the family. It's just going to happen that way. And as we look at this first family in Genesis chapter 4, we see in verses 1 and 2, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Very quickly, we see from birth to adulthood, and now they're in their vocation or their occupation, Adam and Eve's first wife. That's why I'm calling it the first family. We had the first marriage, but they didn't really have any kids yet. You, you don't get the full family dynamic unless you have children, right? You can be married. It's like a constant permanent date. Then you have a child. I tell people, if you want to know how selfish you are, get married, And you will discover how selfish you are. You want to know how doubly selfish you are? Have children. Then you understand how doubly. Because whatever was left over of you is now consumed. Especially you have to have two children to be a genuine parent. Because you must have to have echoing in the back of your mind. He touched me. He hit me. He's mom. You, You do not have, if you have an only child... You do not have, it's like you have a test tube laboratory at home. It is not the same as siblings, right? Shotgun, you got it last time. Mom, I mean, just, oh. Somebody wanted to torture people, so they said, let's invent family vacations where we drive a thousand miles with small children, right? That's why they invented bucket seats so the parent could just reach between the seats and swat whatever he could feel behind him as you're going down the road to have them stop. Families are an interesting dynamic, and now this family, think about it, Adam and Eve were not born. They did not have belly buttons. They did not have umbilical cords. God supernaturally designed them. He designed Adam first, and then he put him to sleep and took something out of Adam to create her. Their genetic structure was almost identical, right? Because she came out of him. And in this genetic structure, now they're going to have their first child. There's no midwife, 
right? <laughs> There's a, no hospital down the street. Who's going to deliver this kid? Well, Adam. Adam is going to deliver the first child. There's nobody else on the planet to do the job. He's got to figure out how to cut the umbilical cord. He's got to hear all of the screaming. He's got to hear, fortunately, there's no one there to listen. It's all your fault. Everything's your fault in this pain that I'm in. And so they have their first child. There's no James Dobson focus on the family books. Nothing like that. But the other thing there is not is there's no Crips or the Bloods down at their local high school, right? There's no drug dealer on the corner. There's no MTV to rot their brain. There's no TikTok videos. <laughs> there's just them, and they've been kicked out of Eden. They all now have fallen sinful natures, which means at your base selfishness, you want your own way, no matter how it affects other people. That's the definition of sin. I want to do what I want to do. I don't care who it hurts. I want what I want. And because of pride that comes with selfishness, I'm the most important person in the universe, so we're going to do it moi's way. It's all going to be my I'm always right. And sin manifests itself from the earliest age. And here, Adam, is uh, Cain, is born, and he is named Acquired. It appears that the promise that was given in Genesis 3.15 that there is going to be a seed born of a woman that was going to crush the serpent Satan's head but get his heel bruised, which is the first promise of a coming Savior, a coming Messiah, that Eve thought the first child onto the scene was him. It's not only I've acquired a child from the Lord, it's like this is the child in her mindset. Like, this is the destined child. This is the favored child, right? You get it, the first child is the favored child in most families. Why? Because here, you're, all your hopes and dreams are hanging on this child. He's the smartest. He's the brightest. He's the most able. He's all these things. You know, I'm the youngest of four, so most of the family album, three quarters, is all pictures of my oldest brother. Right, then the second one comes along and there's a few less. And the third one comes along and there's a few less. And the fourth one comes, it's almost like the family writes in the back of the album, you've seen one, you've seen them all, right? <laughs> but that first one, I mean, they are they're all the hopes and dreams. And, and here Eve has hinged and hooked her wagon to this boy that is acquired, destined from the Lord, possibly the Savior to come, which she discovers he's not because we find that when his brother is named, she names him Abel which means vanity, emptiness, just like breath, like pff, kids. Who said this was a blessing? We had Cain. This is what Cain is, and now Abel. In the book of Ecclesiastes, all the way through, the preacher, who's Solomon, says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, and grasping for the wind. It's the word Abel. All is Abel, Abel, all is Abel, right? Just grasping for the wind. Abel comes along, and he's the youngest, and they choose different occupations. Cain's going to be a farmer. And as we see this first, all the first that are in this chapter, there's the first family with these two siblings. And now these, we know that Adam and Eve were gardeners. The Lord had them in the garden in Eden. Then they're kicked out, so it becomes 
a greater struggle. It's harder to raise crops. Everything's more difficult with thorns and thistles and weeds and sweat and just very difficult. And Abel pursues being a shepherd, as we see shepherds all the way through the scriptures. And he comes with a shepherd's heart. Abel is a special young man. He's the youngest, but he's going to shine the brightest and shine throughout biblical history as an icon of faith and godliness. Unlike Cain, who their original hopes and dreams were pinned upon. Cain is a farmer. Hard work. Don't want to be taking care of animals. So we have the first family. Now we have the first church service. In verses 3 through 5, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, and he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. In the process of time is literally at the end of days. It appears that maybe they built in, because you see, we know that there was a sacrifice of animals to cover Adam and Eve in chapter 3 because it says, and the Lord covered them with animal skins. He gave them fur coats instead of fig leaves. And as they're covered, but we don't see Adam and Eve offering that sacrifice. God did that supernaturally. But for the first time, maybe at an appointed time during the year, to commemorate that at the end of days, or as it says here in the process of time, Cain and Abel had learned from their family, hey, this is when we bring offerings to the Lord. And as they brought their offerings to the Lord, this is Old Testament worship. This is Old Testament church service. And no doubt Adam and Eve uh, probably are there, but they are adults, so maybe they at least do it in the same place, these two brothers, these two siblings. And it says that Abel brought, as we find out in the New Testament, Abel brought faith and he brought the blood of a lamb. That combination of faith and the blood of a lamb. Cain brought his works and sweat. He did not bring faith, and he did not bring blood. Now, some people make this a big deal, but it's uh, the combination of these two things that Abel brought where his heart was right. He's like, Lord, there's only one way to cover my sin, and it's through the shedding of blood. Lord, there's only one way to please you, and that's by faith, as it says in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now his countenance falls because you see God accepted Abel's offering but not his. Well, how do we know he accepted one and not the other? Well, it just tells us God did and it was noticeable by both Abel and Cain. Some believe, just as the Lord does supernaturally at a couple of other times in biblical history, that literally... when the Lord, it honored the Lord, fire came from heaven and consumed, as in the story of Elijah, as in the story of... uh, um, Manoah, who is Samson's parents, and that fire fell, and that's how we'd know. The Lord's fire fell, and he consumed Abel's sacrifice, but nothing touched Cain's because there was no blood and there was no faith. Cain is the original hypocrite. Cain is the original, hardworking, self-righteous, religious person that shows up at church thinking he's better than everybody else, and yet he's the only one in the room not right with God. Happens every Sunday across, around the world probably happened here tonight. Somebody comes in, you're a hard worker, you do the right thing, but you don't have simply a simple trust that, hey, your work is not enough. It's the blood of Jesus and faith in his finished work on the cross that's going to get you into heaven. 
and the person across the room that may be struggling more with different issues in his life but knows that is closer to God than you are with all your works, with all your effort, and all of your self-righteousness. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, with all of their self-righteousness, as uh, C.S. Lewis likes to call people in this condition, the self-righteous prig, which (laughs) means this uh, religious jerk, basically. He said, it's easier for a prostitute to come to faith in Christ and be saved than a self-righteous prig. And what happens is when this person gets right with God, the self-righteous individual then persecutes them just as they did Jesus. Here's the first case of religious persecution in the scriptures in the first family. And it's persecution that's not just a sneer or a sharp word. It's going to be literally murder. Abel is going to be the first child born to a family that loves God and is killed for his faith in walking with Jesus in an Old Testament sense. We have the first intervention because you see his countenance has fallen. And everybody knows when your countenance falls, right? You can't hide it from your wife. You can't hide it from your husband. Your kids say, what's up, dad? (laughs) What's wrong with that scowl on your face? When your countenance falls, you can tell. And this is the first intervention where the Lord wants to step in, put his arm around Cain, and have a heart-to-heart talk with him. It says in verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. It's the picture of a, a crouching wild animal. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Hey, Cain, what's wrong? Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you angry with your brother? You see, he said, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. Cain, you know that you have to bring a heart full of faith and also blood to wash away your sin. But Cain, in your stubbornness and your pride and your self-righteousness, you're determined that your hard work and your effort, you are sneering at the very way to approach God through faith and blood being shed. And you're angry about it because God did not let you write your own prescribed method to approach him. You must come the way God determines for you to come. But Cain is the original, I mean, I can hear the, the song in the back of Cain's head, I did it my way, all the way to hell. You see, Hebrews 11.4 says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, because he did it by faith. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Abel is still speaking to us today. How do you approach God? How do you please God? How does God receive you? By faith and by the blood of the lamb that was shed for you on the cross. His message, this preacher is still preaching. But even with the intervention of the Lord coming and saying, Cain, just do what's right. You'll be, you know, you have those times when the Lord just ministers to you before you fully step into your stupidity? You've had that experience, right? A couple had went out and they had left their 11-year-old at home and he was in the, in the garage all by himself and he got out one of his dad's golf clubs and, hey, there was one of mom's vases kind of stored to the side. And he thought, well, you know, just, whoo, four. <laughs> and he smashed that vase. 
Parents get home, they pull into the garage, smash pieces of vase everywhere. He doesn't even clean it up. And they come to him and they say, hey, son, what'd you do? He goes, well, I was just trying out God's dad's golf club. And that vase just seemed like it would have a really fun sound if I smashed it to pieces. And, and uh, I said, well, didn't, didn't the Lord speak to your heart right before you did it? Like, you probably shouldn't do this. And he said, oh, oh, was that the Lord telling me that? Because I did have that thought. And he goes, oh, mom and dad, I didn't realize. God's been speaking to me a lot about a lot of stuff, right? Right before I do it. Hey, pause. Take a moment. You really want to do this? Yes, follow through with this. But the Lord intervened. It wasn't, the Lord didn't reject Cain. He just wasn't coming the right way. So the Lord just whispered to him. said, Cain, hey, man, just come the right way. Come my way, not your way. I was working on a job site, and there was a guy that was a serious drug addict for 20 years, and he had got clean and sober through AA. He wanted nothing to do with God. I don't know what his higher power was, but him and I had some very lively conversations on this construction site. I'm a, I was setting marble on the face in this jewelry store, kind of a, a columns of marble, and that's what I did for a trade. And we're talking, and, and one of the last days, I'm on my knees by this column, and I'm putting these very, uh, I mean, they're very close joints. I mean, it's very uh, meticulous work. <coughs> And we got to this place of coming to God by faith and the blood of the lamb is the only way to be saved. He was up on the scaffolding and uh, I told him this and he looked down and he, he paused for a moment and his knuckles got white as he was hanging onto the scaffold looking down at me in a menacing look. He was kind of a, a pretty jacked, you know, muscular, tough guy. And he said, are you telling me that I've got, been clean for five years, put my marriage back together, I'm being a good dad to my kids, that that's not good enough to get to heaven. And I'm sitting there, I got my trowel in my hand with my piece of marble, and I said, I could tell right now I'm about ready to get kicked in the face. I thought for a moment. I said, I am not telling you that, but Jesus is telling you that. Off the scaffolding, he jumps off the scaffolding, he comes huffing up, and I was on my knees, so I thought I was going to get one right in the face, just drop kicked in the face, and I just kind of cringed. It won't, wouldn't be the first black eye I've had, or the first time I'd been knocked out. And I, I, you know, I'm a Christian, I've been witnessing to him all this time, and he just stopped short, and then he just had to excuse himself. He must have walked around the job for 15 minutes to cool off. It's that kind of conversation with the canes of life, where... You know, you can do a lot of stuff, folks. There's only one way to write with God. You must come by faith through the blood of Jesus or you're toast. You're history. You're lost. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care what you think you've done. All your righteousness and efforts without faith in the blood of Jesus is filthy rags, God says. Now, that's a heavy message when people have been banking their whole life on their own goodness, Right? Torques them off. They get upset. But we have the first murder now. He doesn't heed God's voice in verse 8. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We don't know how much time elapsed. Is it that afternoon? Is that week? Does it take in the next couple of months for it just to grow and to seethe? If you've ever had resentment born really first in envy. Envy is this weird emotion that is based on a resentment at the blessing of another. It's really twisted. You would think if anybody's blessed in some way, you as a decent human would rejoice with them, right? Praise God. Like you walk away from the thing thinking, 
hey, Abel was blessed. God accepted his sacrifice. God's told me how to do it right. So all I have to do is reboot and do it right. But you don't want to do it right. And so envy is this sick displeasure at the advantage or the blessing of another and an anger because you want that, that advantage instead of them. It's really sick. That's why the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Step into their experience. But you know what we do? When people rejoice and are blessed, we weep. Why not me? Why not me? How come I didn't get the new car or the promotion or that, whatever it is? And then when they weep and they actually go through heartache because you've been envious of them, you kind of smile and smirk and go, it's about time they got their comeuppance. You know, their life's too blessed. They should have some heartache, tragedy, and tears in their life. Now, some of you are looking at me with a blank look like you don't know what I'm talking about. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You are just like me. And our sinful nature can be envious, and that envy can turn into resentment and anger and rage towards the blessing of another. Abel is nobody but a sweet shepherd that loves God, and he's taking care of his sheep. That's it. He's a good kid. He's a good man. And it disgusts Cain, and he takes his life. I'm going to shut up this religious, thinks he's better than me. I'm going to shut his mouth forever. They've never seen murder. They've sacrificed animals, so they know what the brutality of it is. He kills him. He kills him. He takes his life. First John tells us this, chapter 3, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked ones. Cain's soul was not the Lord's, but the devil's, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder him? John tells us through the inspiration of the Spirit, because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Because Cain was not right with God, and it torqued him off that his brother was right with God. Why, does your fam why is your family irritated with you at Thanksgiving if you're right with Jesus? And they're not right with Jesus. And it just, you see, it's, it's almost like they're looking right past you, and they hate Jesus inside of you. It's not that you're preaching at them. It's not that you're talking to them. It's not that you're, you're doing anything to them. Just merely the presence that you now have a joy and a peace that they don't have, and they know that God gave you that favor. And it drives them nuts. Drives them crazy. We have the first murder sentence. There's no court of law. It's just the Lord. And he tells him what's going to be up in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Famous words. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, he was a good farmer Cain had a green thumb. It shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it shall happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. We don't know what this mark was to protect him, but when Cain shared his heart that he was fearful that whoever met him, who, who's going to meet him? Where's Cain going to get his wife? From his relatives. 
right? From Adam and Eve. Adam lives 930 years, folks. 930 years. Eve lives about that long. How many kids can you do the math from age, say, 20? Having a child every two years for 500 years till menopause. How many kids can you crank out, right? You can crank out a lot of kids. Dr. Henry Morris, who is a scientist and a wonderful Christian, has a commentary on the book of Genesis, does a conservative math for those because the people are not dying, they're living for almost a thousand years. And if the people were having an average of like four children and it just like he extract, he does this whole math process, that by the time of the flood, do you know that mathematically, conservatively, there could be six billion people on the planet when the flood came and Noah entered the ark? Six billion. Right now there's only almost eight billion, but seven and three quarter billion on the planet. Do you realize that? So everybody's a cousin, right? Everybody's a sibling. Everybody, uh, Cain's going to marry his, and, and those cousins over there don't like your side of the family. You got any families that don't like your side of the family? We don't talk anymore ever since that day, whatever that day is for you. It's, it's, it's when things went south for your family and the dysfunction exploded upon everybody. It's fascinating that Cain's curse is that he's going to be driven away from all the blessing that God had that was even outside of Eden. Outside the garden, outside of paradise, they still were blessed. As a farmer, he was blessed. Abel was blessed with their, their herds and the flocks. He was so blessed. And now he's not bummed. He, he says, am I bro my brother's keeper? What's the right answer to that? Yeah, all of us are each other's keeper. That's why this whole thing is so bizarre about the racial discrimination and the race stuff. You see, we all have the set of, same set of grandparents, right? Adam and Eve. And if everybody's destroyed, then we have Noah and Mrs. Noah. We don't get her name, right? Noah and Mrs. Noah. And when they came out with a study, 2015, they came out with a study, these scientists, they did massive data crunching of DNA of humans and animals, and they came up with a startling discovery that all humans came from one set of parents from their perspective 100,000 years ago. And it says, uh, you can look this up, the, uh, Fowler is the scientist, Fowler and Stokel. And they said they fought this, this evidence and the fact of it so hard because what did it smack of? Biblical truth. They can't have it. So they came at the, when I read it the first time, they didn't have, now I read it recently, and they got all these disclaimers at the end of it because preachers like me said, told you, we all got the same set of grandparents. You know, some people have more melanin than others, but that's it. So it, it's fascinating that he was, his judgment was he's going to wander and be a vagabond. He's going to be transient. He, he can't, and, and you know that happens when we have a big disaster in our families, right? Something happens really bad, and what do people do? They leave town, they move away, and they bounce all over the world until they can find a place 
that they can somehow forget all the drama that was at home. 25 years later, they come to mom's funeral or dad's funeral, and nobody has seen them in 20 or 30 years because of the heartbreak. And you ask them where they've been. And they come back looking like it's been 60 years because it's not the years, it's the miles of a soul that's out of step with God. We're out of step with our family. And we're just like a vagabond. The, the relationships don't go deep. And you just wander around. You're looking, you become this rootless tumbleweed because of what takes place. And, and that's the punishment of Cain. Even though God gives him divine grace, he's going to protect him. He puts a mark on him. We don't know what the mark is. The Mormons taught that it was the mark of the blackness of skin. So that's why a black person in the Mormon church could not hold their Melchizedek or Aaronic priesthood until the 70s. <laughs> Racial revolution, right? And desegregation. All of a sudden the Mormon church had a revelation from God that black people are no longer under the mark of Cain and they can be accepted into their priesthood. Each time the Mormon church is out of sync with culture, they have a heavy revy from God. It's very convenient. Oh, we got a revelation. Right? It's not blackness of skin. It's, it's not, a, I don't know if it's a, a, you know, the symbol for our church is God speak. It's a circle with a big G, right? That's the symbol. Maybe it's just a big G on the forehead. That's God's guy. Don't touch God's guy, right? <laughs> we don't know what it is. It was probably an invisible mark in which just people, when they were close to him, they just sensed, you just don't touch this guy. He's God's, right? Just leave him alone. And look at God's grace for this guy, right? God's grace will strive with you to the end. The goodness of God is always drawing us. So the Lord even says, if you mess with Cain, I'm going to bring judgment to you sevenfold. He encourages him. Now we have the first city because Cain thinks in his mind, oh yeah, I'm going to wander around, be a vagabond, and when I plant crops, they're no longer going to flourish anymore. Well, I'm going to build a city, <laughs> and I'm going to name that city Enoch or consecrated. Basically, I'm going to dedicate a new start. It's a city, it's a life, it's a family without God. That's what I'm going to do because I don't want God. Verse 16, the first city, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. Nod literally means wanderer, exiled, or fugitive. Where are you going? Just to wander around. And Cain knew his wife. This would be one of his sisters or nieces. It's a family relative from Adam and Eve. They just realized there's now hundreds of them, lots of kids, and called the name of the city um, his son Enoch. So the first, excuse me, the first child's born is Enoch, and then he names a city after him. So his son is dedicated or consecrated. I'm going to name the city designated or consecrated. And basically, I'm planting my roots in. I'm digging in, even to rebel, because God said, I'm going to wander around. I'm going to show him. At every turn, <laughs> Cain's thumbing his nose at God. No, no faith, no blood going to wash away his sins. And then we have these um, boys. Enoch was born to Enoch, in verse 18, was born Irad. Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methuselah Methuthel begot Lamech. <laughs> I found how like I have speech impediment. I'm sure some of you are about ready to have a baby and you're looking for a baby name. There's one right there for you. Sad thing is the Mahuthael short would be meth. You don't want a meth baby. 
We have the first polygamy, and that is Lamech, who is the seventh from Adam. Then Lamech took his wife, two, for himself two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. So he plants roots at a city that he's going to develop, and he's going to make uh, resources since farming is, is now, he's a powerless farmer because the earth is not working with him because of the curse of God upon the ground in relationship to Cain. So he's got to have a city for other people to make resources so that he can somehow figure out the urban center of the world that can be godless and not the rural area of people that is uh, wanting to walk with God and wanting to have strong families and various things. You ever looked at a map of the red and blue on the map of the United States? The entire map is red with conservative people, except every urban center is blue and godless. Cain starts the first blue city, right? It's named Enoch. No, we don't want God here. We're not going to do what God says. God says marriage is between a man and a woman. Lamech comes along and says, "Uh uh-uh, I got Ada. Ada means adorned. I got Zillah. That means shady. I got the looker and the one that you're not quite sure about. Ada and Zillah. From A to Z, I'm going to figure out these women, right? Now they have kids, and we see a listing now as the city begins to develop and society begins to develop, and we see now vocations begin to develop even beyond uh, gardening, farming, and shepherding. The husbandry in verse 20, Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So he's going to keep up with the uh, agrarian society of uh, being a shepherd, having livestock. His uh, name literally means producer. He's going to produce sheep. He's going to produce cattle. He'll be the first cattle baron in this, this family. And then the arts in verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. His name means sound. So he's the first musician. He says, you know, the sheep stink, farming's hard work. I think I'm going to play the guitar, right? I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to have a band. I'm going to serenade people for tips. I'm going to have, and people look at this, the first vocation of Jabal is husbandry, which means to produce crops or livestock. And then you have the arts. We have the musicians. And then we have technology in verse 22. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. This was technology to be a metal worker in metallurgy. And so he figures out how to make tools and weapons. Isn't it fascinating that the whole evolutionary story is that men are these knuckle draggers that came from, you know, apes and subspecies and slowly, you know, apes that grew into upright man and that they're these hunter-gatherers. And the Lord says, no, from the beginning, I created these intelligent, brilliant people, Adam and Eve, and their kids. Here we have... The, the arts, musicians, we have uh, somebody that's inventing, uh, they're basically old school blacksmith working with metallurgy and figuring out how to work with, I mean, this means you have to get the ore and you have to smelt the ore. These are very technical things. My grandfather was uh, a metallurgist. He wrote, read a book when he was 14 years old that was this thick about everything, how to cold weld and 
various things. And it's the thing that raised him out of poverty. He only had a sixth grade education, but he could read. And he taught himself about everything metal. He was the genius in the west end of the valley where we are from. For if you want something that nobody else knows how to do, you take it to Orville Brown. And he figured it out. These things are complex. They're difficult. Special temperature, special cooling, whether it's in water or it's oil, however these things work. But it's the technology advancement. There's beauty because we don't know why for any other reason. And then the sister to Bolkane was Naama. Now, Naama means beauty or grace. So now we have the beauty products. Here's the girl with the first Mary Kay pink Cadillac. She's making the rounds in Eden. She's cruising around. She's beautiful. But it appears that as most things are masculine in nature through this patriarchal uh, history of things, that she's thrown in there for a specific purpose, that uh, beauty now is appreciated in this culture of the town of Enoch that they've created. We have the first song, and uh, Lamech is going to sing it in verse 23. Then Lamech said to his wives, Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. You've got to have kind of a rap, this kind of a grungy rap song right here because it's about killing a guy, right? He just, he just killed him. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He comes home with this arrogant boast, I just killed this kid. He wounded me, maybe he punched me in the face. But now, it's one thing to defend yourself, and the Bible is very clear about that, to defend yourself. But it appears that this, this younger guy wounds him slightly, but he throttles him and takes his life. So an excess of violence. And then he writes a song to it. You, you feeling me? Come on now. Saturday night. Got a rap thing. He's singing to Wives of the Mint, A, to a and Z. Listen to me, I'm your macho, macho man. Sorry. <laughs> Things get turned loose when you're on Saturday night. Anyway, and now we have the first revival because that's nothing but just depressing news about the dysfunctional family, right? Everything. Envy, murder, polygamy, banished from the presence of God. Just... All the rebellion that, that is in the hearts of man. And you say, what's wrong with your family? Well, the same thing that's wrong with my family, sin. If you, if you don't buy into what the scriptures say, that as David said in Psalm 51, he said, I was conceived in iniquity. The moment of conception when, when the sperm of his father, Jesse, came together with the egg of his mother, at that moment, sin was conceived in who I am. You see, it's a genetic condition passed down through the man, Adam. It's called the, you know, Eve was tempted in sin and got Adam to eat it. It's called the Adamic sin. It's not called the Evedic sin. It's called the Adamic sin. Why? Because he was responsible. He knew better. Should have, you know, encouraged his, his, his wife. Now, but at the very moment when your child is born and comes in, to this world. They are a fallen sinful creature. And if you have a three-year-old, how in the world do you not believe that? <laughs> right? What are you going to have to, are you going to have to teach that three-year-old how to lie? You're going to have to teach him that? No. They're going to learn it. It's just like it just spills out of them. 
Where'd you lie? I just lie. Do you have to teach them how to be selfish? No. Do you have to, you have to teach them to tell the truth. You have to tell them to share. You have to teach them how to be kind. Why? Because when they come on the scene, and fortunately, a two-year-old's temper tantrum is only in a 30-pound body. Because if it was a 200-pound body, they'd kill everybody in sight. Fortunately, in the process of raising them up. And this is the mind-blowing thing to me as parents. Parents are always so shocked by their children's naughtiness. Oh, my Johnny. Oh, my, I can't believe my Johnny did that. Here, look at it. Dude, you and I grew up together. You, you know what you were like, right? You, you just had this kid. What, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I think it is the delusion in the parental mind that our children are going to escape the bullet and the consequences of the sin that is growing in their own hearts. It's not so. All we can do is point them to the answer that it's in faith in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you and the power of his spirit to change you and to help you. Right? It's a dependence that we have to constantly bring them to the foot of the cross. Hey, you've got to meet Jesus. I can only do the best I can as a dad or a mom. You've got to meet Jesus. Jesus has got to be real to you. He's real to mom and dad. He's got to be real to you. Your 16-year-old or your 17-year-old or, you know, the boy or the girl. Or when they're 17 and they think they got that bad case of know-it-alls. Right? No, sir, you don't know what you're talking about. My parents are so out of touch. As soon as you turn 25, you look back at your parents and you go, man, they were so smart. Who is out of touch? You're out of touch with reality. Because it's hubris. And when you're leaving the house and they, you know, want to slam the door and say, you take your Bible, I don't want your church, I don't want your Jesus, I don't want your spiritual garbage, I'm sick of you dragging me to church. You go, okay, okay, calm down. I'm not cramming this down your throat. I'm offering you the way to have the most abundant life you possibly can. And if you don't want that, God's a total gentleman. The Lord put his arm around Cain and said, Cain, don't go this way. And Cain said, forget you. And God honored that. He just said, all right, you want it? That's your life. But if you're here and you're a teenager and you got that attitude, that chip on your block, I want you to know this. You go out there and knock yourself out in the world looking for love, joy, and peace. And if you find something that's better than Jesus, you owe it to us, your parents, to come back and tell us what it is. Because we looked really hard, and we couldn't find it. So if you're the smartest person that's ever come on the planet, which at this point you think you are, I don't know who I'm talking to right now, but the Lord has a word for you. You owe it to your mom and dad. But you know what? They're doing the best they can. They're also broken, flawed, sinful people. They're doing the best they can with what they got. And so it would be good for you to have some grace in your heart for your imperfect parents because pretty soon you're going to be one. And you're going to need that same kind of grace. And if you think there's something out there that can fill you with the kind of love and joy and peace and goodness that only the Savior of the world offers, you owe it to us to tell us what it is. You see, this generation needs its now own revival. We see the first revival. In verse 25 and 26 as we end. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. 
For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then when he had the son, when Seth had his son Enosh, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What did they discover? See, Adam and Eve, they see the brokenness, they see the dysfunction. Eve realizes, man, I had my, all my, my dreams set on Cain, and Cain turned out this way. And then I realized Abel was really the one filled with faith in the blood of the lamb that was going to wash away his sins. And now I need a new son that will carry on that spiritual legacy, and it's going to be Seth. And the appointed one. And so Seth's going to be that son. And then Seth, who's the, the godly son, has a, a son, a grandson of Adam and Eve. And his name's Enosh. And when Enosh comes on the scene, he goes, Mom and Dad, you know, we should pray together. We should seek God. We should offer to the Lord. We should go to church. Hey, can I go to, can I go to vacation Bible school? Can I, I go to youth camp? It's so wild to me when children be, are the source and they begin to bring the parents to church. They begin to drag the parents because their hunger, and parents are like, yeah, whatever, the kids want to go to church, it's Sunday, I don't want to go, it's my only day to sleep in, I've been working my brains out, but what do you say, your kid's like dragging you, what a great problem to have, that parents have the drug problem of being drugged to church by their kids. <laughs> when you see a young man or a young woman filled aflame with the spirit of God and a love for Jesus and trusting in nothing but his blood that washes away sins, revival comes. Revival comes to a town, it comes to a church, it comes to a community. And this generation, you see, I rode the wave at the tail end of the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s and the radical fruit of it in the 80s. My generation had an incredible re revolution spiritually. It had a revival nationwide. And then that's subdued. They only last about 40 years. And this generation, all they do is badmouth the church and the older generation. You know what? You know, the church is this and the church is that. And I've had, I have had like ad nauseum talk to millennials about church. I don't go to church. Most of my friends want nothing to do with God because of the hypocrites in the church. I'm like, where do you get off? Who are you? Are you the perfect generation? Let's see you put the perfect church together. I promise you, your kids will badmouth you, whatever you think it is. And we live in this generation that I'm just like, had it up to you. Just sick of your vomit because you're out there flopping around with no love and joy and peace and throwing rocks at God's people. Hey, we're doing the best we can with what we got. We're still flawed, broken people, and we don't do it perfectly. But we're sure wanting to walk with Jesus in our clumsy effort, as you so well have pointed out to us how clumsy it is. But the, re the reality is, when Enosh comes on the scene, people begin to cry out and call in the name of the Lord. May that happen to this generation. I rejoice, I pray for this generation to discover in a fresh way the, G the love that, that I fell in love with Jesus. My kids ask me, why'd you come to church? I'm like, man, you see, for a church kid that that's all you've known is church, you are so spoiled with goodness that you just pick it apart. I came from trash into the beauty of the house of God. I'm like, everybody's filled with joy and peace and they're hugging me. What do they want from me? Nothing. They just love me. And I'm like, I've never been in an atmosphere like this. 
right? And for my wife and I, we tell our kids, the church changed our life. Jesus changed our life, and this is how we grew. This is his plan in church to grow. You guys, all you've known is the goodness of Jesus. And you just pick it apart. Stinking church kids. We have more problem with church kids than we do the kids getting saved in high school and coming to church. Because the high school kid, all they see is the grace of God. And these church kids, all they have is rocks to throw. It's bizarre. It's mind-blowing to me. Well, I haven't been in those shoes, though, I guess. But I promise you, if you're looking for hypocrites, if you go to the bar, they're there. At work, they're there. You go to the Elks Lodge, they're there. People all through life act like they better, they're better than they actually are. That's all a hypocrite is. It's somebody that's acting superior to who they really are. May God give us and this generation, and may people begin to call on the name of the Lord that we have for revival in these days. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for meeting us here. Do all that you want to do right now, Lord, in our hearts and your kindness. Lord, I just pray for those who, Lord, they just have a major train wreck in their own life. And Lord, how we know what that feels like. I just pray that your love and your kindness would, would wrap them up and envelop them in your love and forgiveness and your mercy tonight. To wash away their sins, Lord, to sweep away the condemnation and to know that they're loved and they're accepted through faith and the wonderful blood of Jesus that washes them clean tonight. Lord, if they've been that tumbleweed wandering around because of their failure of their past, Lord, would you settle them down? Lord, would you establish them in grace? Lord, it's, we know our past. But as Paul told us, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing onward to the upward call that's in Christ Jesus, we set our eyes on you. We ask it in Jesus' name.